you would grab a Bible, let's open to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, that's where we will start and introduce the idea that we'll be pursuing uh, for this time. Ezekiel, don't turn to Ezekiel. Exodus chapter 16 uh, is where we'll begin this morning. Good to see you this morning. As has been mentioned, we have visitors. Thank you for being here and uh, looking forward to the time that we're going to spend in studying really just here, and we'll jump into another passage where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. Is uh, Exodus chapter 16. begin by reading verse 1. Exodus 16, verse 1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." So the Israelites have just captured, just escaped from Egyptian slavery. And if you remember, in fact, you just turned the page back to chapter 14 and 15. They had just come through the Red Sea. You remember what happened where they cried out to the Lord for help because the Egyptians made their lives bitter in hard service. They were slaves. They were mistreated. And they cried out to God probably for years or even generations. Israel had dreamed of a moment where they would be free. And now they are free, and immediately they say, we wish we were back in Egypt. I mean, it's just a matter of days or weeks before they are ready to go back to the situation that they spent centuries wanting to escape. So, if you're keeping score at home, that means they cry and cry and cry for deliverance from Egypt, and then immediately start crying for deliverance back to Egypt. Now, to be sure, the conditions that Israel were living in in this time, both in Egypt and now in the desert, were, according to our standards and the way we're used to living, we would probably be complaining too, wouldn't we? Okay, We would not be happy, and we would be frustrated with God and Moses and anybody and say, just what's going on here? Why can't we do better? But there is something here that is more than just about the conditions they're in. It is a spirit that becomes a problem. And it's a spirit that keeps going. We have a saying that uh, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. You know, wherever you are, somewhere else looks a little bit better. Maybe that becomes because we have a comparison with somebody else that we think is having a really good life. And we can't wait to, maybe if I had what they have, I could be as happy as they seem to be. But sometimes that also leads us to think, you know, if I had a different job or if I had a different boss, or if my kids were a little older, or if my spouse would do this or that, or if I just had a little more money, or if it was just just maybe just this little tweak here or there, then I could finally be happy. And I want to call that this morning uh, the greener grass syndrome. I think you see that in the children of Israel. And, And what I want you to see, just think this through with me, is that there is a restlessness in that spirit that Israel typifies. So Israel here is unhappy because they don't have water, or because they don't have food, okay? And pretty soon, though, it's going to be because they don't have a leader that they trust. They don't like Moses. They don't like the way Moses leads. And so they say, we want a different leader. Then when God leads them to the cusp of the promised land, they send out spies to go into the land. It is the same spirit that says, oh, we'll never make it in this land. It is the spirit that is continually unhappy with where they are, and it leads them to doubt God and end up being uh, really... 
They're never at a place where they're satisfied. For their whole lives, this generation lives unsatisfied, unhappy, discontent, and they die in the wilderness. But I want to talk about this, not because I want to talk about Israel. I want to talk about this because I relate to that. That feeling that contentment is always around the next corner. In fact, it really, the the way that this best is illustrated in my mind is how I have struggled with this in viewing my children. So when children are born, you, you can't wait for the children to finally sleep through the night. Okay, boy, that's a big milestone, okay? And then you're waiting for them to walk and to talk. And then you're waiting for them, if we could just get them out of diapers. And of course, we have three, and uh, they were all pretty close together. So, you know, even getting one out of diapers was a major victory. But then, then you, you know, you want them to be able, just small things. Like if, if they could just get in the car by themselves, get in and out of their seat. Oh, it's just, if, if they could just do this. And, and there is always, if this happened, then then things would be good. Then we would be happy. But really, what we're saying, if, if this could just happen, what we're saying is we're not happy where we are. But if just some small thing would change, then we would be happy. And that, to me, is the heart of discontent. And by the way, you never reach a point where you get everything satisfied, right? In fact, I was talking to one of my kids this week and just kind of said, you know, what starts that way with babies then becomes, boy, if we could just get one of them driving, you know, and they could take the others around, we didn't have to take them. And, you know, if, if we could just, and, and if we could just, if we could just, and then eventually, you know, well, if just the grandkids would come see us more often, you know, and, and if we just, if, maybe when I get to be retired, then I can, and, and, and you just keep pushing it forward for the rest of your life. Can't we learn to be content where we are? I want to think about that with you for a few minutes. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. I want to show you how we overcome the greener grass syndrome by looking at the way Paul did it. I know that this text is probably not new to you, and the ideas that we're going to pursue are not new to you. They're not new to me either. Uh, and yet, it seems to me worth our time to refresh ourselves in what the mindset of contentment that God expects Christians to have, what it really looks like from someone who had matured into overcoming this syndrome. Philippians 4, let's just read Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, so Paul, let me remind you, is in Roman custody. He is in prison, of course, for things he didn't do. He is innocent. And yet, as he writes this, he is in worse situations than you and I are in, generally. And yet, he has a better perspective than you and I do, generally. So there is something to learn here. And I want us to take uh, three things from this uh, section that I think will help us overcome this spirit. First, 
we overcome this by disciplining our thinking. So much of this battle is fought in the mind, how we view ourselves, how we view our lives, and how we view our circumstances, what we focus on. And there is a discipline that is needed here that I think Paul illustrates for us. Look in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He is saying choose to rejoice. Paul has a lot to complain about, a lot that he could say, this, let me tell you all the stuff that's happening to me and how unfair it is. Can't you see yourself in Paul's situation starting that way? Hey, let me give you an earful about how they're treating me and what's happening here. But, but Philippians is not like that. He says, you choose to rejoice. He's in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And there is always an opportunity to be joyful, no matter what's going on around us. And, and I say that, that sounds really, uh, I don't know, it doesn't sound as deep as it truly is. No matter what's going on around us, in awful circumstances, we can always choose to rejoice. That's what rejoice in the Lord always means, in all circumstances, at all times. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Isn't that amazing that he's telling us that? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So do not be anxious, but he says in place of anxiety, notice how he words it, but don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he says, instead of being anxious, give your worries and insecurities to God. And particularly, I find it helpful that he says, make it requests. You know, sometimes when we worry, I don't know about you, this is me, it's just kind of a big indeterminate ball of things I'm concerned about. In fact, if you were to ask me, how are you feeling? I just say, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling good. I'm worried. Okay, but, but when you begin to say, okay, what do I need? How can God help me? What am I asking for? You know, that, that sort of trains our minds to go in a certain path where we can say, here is what I need from God. And then I can make it into a request and God can say yes or no, but I don't have to worry about it anymore. It's in God's hands and not mine. So he says, let your request be made known. Instead of being anxious and you just sitting and fretting, which is not productive, give it to God where it is productive and make it in the form of requests. He also mentions that we can do it with thanksgiving, which means that we also have this mindset that says we acknowledge there are things God has already given and has already answered. And so now that's going to help us in our anxiety. And he says in verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. So peace will guard us because God is going to give us peace. We don't have to be anxious when we give these things to God in the form of requests. Then verse 8, Philippians 4 and verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So this is a verse that teaches us to be discerning about what we think about. That the topic of our thoughts is something we must choose. And because of that, there are some things that we need to choose not to focus on, not to think about. So that's good news. The good news is you're not a victim of whatever crosses your mind. You have choice. But the bad news is that's going to require some effort that we're going to have to work. And that's why I said discipline your thinking because there's discipline in focusing on things that are going to be good. 
So think about that. Look at these, these words in verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. So think about the opposite of those things would be we're going to focus on things that are false or things that are dishonorable or unjust or impure. Now, those things are going to come into our minds sometimes, whether that's from inputs from outside or just things that cross our minds. But whatever it is, we can choose to think about things that are positive instead of these things that are evil. So we can always choose to rejoice We can always choose not to be anxious. We can always choose to meditate on good things, but we must choose. And that means there are going to be thoughts that we must reject. We have to have discipline in our thinking. So think about it this way. You know, we could sit around and we could say, you know what, let's think about all the things that could go wrong. You ready? Let's make a list. Do you know how long that list would be? And how would you feel when you got done making that list? Would you feel better? It would be awful. There are so many things that could go wrong. In fact, what we're going to feel is anxious because we begin to realize, wow, there are so many, so many more things can go wrong than can go right, right? That leads to anxiety. Or if you want to dwell on things, you can dwell on what you don't have. You ready for that? Okay, let's make a list of all the things we don't have. Well, how's that going to make us feel? Well, we're going to feel that discontent that says, you know what, I don't have so much. There's so many things I don't have. In fact, it was interesting to me, studying on contentment this week, that very often Bible writers will pit contentment against the love of money. Okay, that that's sort of the way that's framed. Let let me show you a couple places. This is Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. You see the contrast there? It's one or the other. Love of money is going to make you discontent. You're thinking about what you don't have, and you love it, but you don't have it, So it makes you discontent. I'm not going to be happy until I get what I'm seeking, what I love. Or uh, 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and he goes on from there. But the idea is contentment here is contrasted with those who desire to be rich. We're unhappy because we have something we want that we do not yet have. Now, I would say it's not just Poor people who desire to be rich, you know, that love of money can happen in any state. But what I am saying is it's a focus on what we don't have. And if we focus on what we don't have, it will take our contentment away. So we must be disciplined in the way we think because that thought will lead us to the discontent that eventually comes out in our actions. Can I say a couple of things about this in our time? Boy, I only have 10 minutes left. Okay, better say them quickly. Christians fight this because this is what advertising is in America. Look at an advertisement. Do you know what it will tell you? Things are terrible in your life because you don't have this product. Okay? Everything in your life is miserable. You just didn't even know it because you need this vacuum cleaner. You need this or that. Okay? That's, so we're bombarded with messages all the time about what we don't have. Social media is like this. Social media is about how all the people you know are living incredible lives. They have fun all the time. Their kids are always happy. Everything is always so smooth. It just happens when they're not around you, okay? But, but every other time, you know, you can see it. You can see the pictures, okay? And so what do we feel when we see those kinds of messages? You don't have enough. Their lives are better than yours. Something's wrong with you. We, we feel discontent. If that's what we're feeding ourselves, if that's what we're thinking about, then we're saying we're not enough as we are right now. So Paul is teaching us 
that there is freedom and blessing in mental discipline. And I want to encourage you, this is something no one else can do for you. Nobody else can discipline your thinking, okay? No, your parents can't do it. Your brethren can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. You must choose to discipline your thinking. So I want to encourage you to start working on those mental muscles. I think that's what verse 8 is teaching us. Think on these things that are good. Choose them. So instead of listing all the things that are possibly going to go wrong in your life or all the things you don't have, list all the things that are good in your life. When things start to get negative, redirect your thinking toward things that are positive. In fact, there may be people who are negative, who you're going to have to say, you know what, I need to limit contact with that person because they're only making me think about negative things. But whatever it is, there's a discipline here that is necessary for us to overcome this. Second, Let's talk about processing our circumstances. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned both the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So, The subject of his letter is that the Philippians have sent money to help Paul in his need. And that's verse 10. You know, I rejoice that you you have renewed your care, revived your care for me. But he says, I'm not complaining. Verse 11, I'm not speaking about need. And I'm not trying to, to whine and say, thank you for finally remembering me or being able to help. I know you've been trying, but it just hasn't worked out. He says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's a strong implication from that that phrase, I have learned. It means it's not natural for Paul. It's not natural for any one of us, but what he is describing as he describes contentment above circumstance, what he's describing is a a mark of spiritual maturity, that there's a process you have to go through to get there. I have learned it. And I think a lot of it has to do with I've learned it by experience. I've learned it by not having it sometimes. I've learned it by experiencing the poles of abundance and need. I know what it is to do both, and I'm going to have to go through this process if I want to be like Paul. So verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Okay, so I can handle myself in any situation. By the way, that implies that just because you have wealth doesn't mean there aren't spiritual struggles that accompany wealth. You know, there is a way to abound that's good, and there's a way to abound that's bad. He says, both of those I'm ready for. I can do either one of them. So When I talk about processing circumstances, I mean doing more than merely reacting to them. Very often we feel that we are victims of our circumstances. So this is just what's happening to me this week. And very often our language betrays us in that. So someone will say, how how are you? Or how's it going with you? And we will immediately say, well, here are all the circumstances that I'm having to deal with this week. Somebody did this. Somebody said this. We're doing this. We're going here. You know, it's all about circumstances as if... That's what determines whether or not we're happy or sad, good or bad. How we're doing is strictly a function of our circumstances. But to process our circumstances means something deeper. And so I, I want to, I'm going to have to rush through this. I, I want to I give you some thoughts that I think will give us some perspective about our circumstances. That will help us process and gain perspective. The first is this. We're all going to have to face adverse circumstances. All of us. In fact, all of us are always going to have to face, in some way, adverse circumstances, right? Okay, does anybody get to live the life where things are always perfect? Okay, 
I haven't found it yet. I have not talked to them. And uh, if you have people, very often we'll do this where we look through the keyhole and we see, wow, they seem really happy. I guess everything must be perfect for them. Well, if you, if you talk to them or get a little closer to them, you'll see they're just normal people like everyone else. So the first thing is we, we all have to go through that. And it's a, there's a little bit of pride in saying, I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to have any adversity. Second, circumstances don't last forever. Whatever's going on, the, the likelihood is very strong that it is going to change. So things are going really well, probably won't go well forever. Things are going really poorly, probably won't go poorly forever. So instead of saying, I need to respond to whatever's happening in the moment, there's maturity in what Paul says. I can handle this, and you know, it's probably not going to be forever. I probably won't be in this prison cell forever. Things are going to change, and I can live above that. I don't have to let my attitude be determined by that. Third, there will always be good and bad in whatever situation we're in. Always. Okay, so really the battle here is going to be in seeking good and not focusing on bad. And that's going to be true in every circumstance, whether things are going really well or things are going really poorly, whether we're in a prison cell or whether we're at home. Wherever it is, we're going to have to deal with some bad and some good, and our choices will be made from there. Fourth, we have a lot to be thankful for wherever we are. Remember back in verse 6, he said, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Gratitude says, I'm not just going to focus on the things I don't like. Isn't that what, what's missing from Israel in the desert? They come out of the Red Sea and immediately they begin to complain. Okay, there's no sense of thank you so much, God, for delivering us from this. Instead, it's like, why did you bring us out here to die? Okay, the whole bringing us out here, they've, they've forgotten. And the fifth is, we don't deserve better than what we receive. Sometimes it seems to me that this creeps into our thinking. I deserve better than this. Our culture is telling us, you deserve to be happy. You deserve to have whatever you want. Now, usually they're selling us something, but that's what our culture tells us. And, and the, the idea of deserving is a, I've earned it. In what sense have we earned the right to always be happy and never have anything bad happen to us? Who do we think we are? It seems to me that we've got to challenge that mindset and say, that we all have good and bad at all times. And we've got to mature to the point that we can process that and deal with that and not let that determine our mood and our spiritual state. So is there good in my situation? What are all the good things? What has God given me? What are the blessings here? What's developing my character? How is God working on me? In fact, I, I have struggled with this because for me, I will work towards something and pray for something, and then when I finally get it, it only takes a couple of weeks, and I immediately am not only un ungrateful, I've forgotten about that whole process, and I start whining again. It seems to me that there has to be an acknowledgement of all the good God is doing instead of just complaining about what's some things that we don't like. The third thing I want us to see here is to overcome this syndrome we need to find strength in Christ. Verse 13, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. Now in context, the all things here is about the, the mental discipline and the contentment he finds in Christ. Okay, that's the focus here. It's not, uh, I can jump over mountains and things like that. This is instead, 
I, I, I can achieve this kind of contentment because Christ is at work in me. He relies on Christ. So when we can't be content on our own, we turn to Christ. When we're in situations we can't resolve on our own, we can be anxious about it or we can turn to Christ. Paul talks about this, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, where he talks about the thorn in the flesh. And he talks about how Christ told him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so he says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses because when I'm weak, I'm strong. The focus there is even my weakness takes me to Jesus. He makes me strong in times when I can't do it on my own. So he says, I'm, I'm happy when I find I'm weak because I know my need for Jesus and I reach out to him more. So the key to contentment is Jesus. Good times are a gift from Jesus. Bad times expose our need for Jesus and they drive us to Jesus. And all the while, through both of those processes, Jesus is at work in us, refining our character, making us into stronger, more mature disciples. So even when I suffer, he teaches me and I grow and I get stronger. So what we're saying is, it's good for me to have some things in my life that are not perfect. It toughens me. It humbles me. I don't have to have perfection to have joy and to have peace and to have contentment. I don't have to please everybody. I don't have to achieve everything. I don't have to have all that I want. Jesus strengthens me so that I can live right where I am in a way that pleases him. So, while I hope for more in the next life, he strengthens me to deal with what I have in this life. As long as I have Jesus, I'm good. My grace, he says, is sufficient for you. So, I hope you'll take these things. Discipline your thinking, process your circumstances, find strength in Christ, and I hope you'll do some self-examination. This has been a challenging week for me because of this process. You know, when you're preaching, you work with the sermon before you present it, which means you have to try, at least on some level, to put it on and wear it a little bit and think through it. And this has been a challenge for me um, because of, of some circumstances this week. But I will say that the reminder has been incredible for me to bring me closer and closer to peace. My point, the point of Paul, is we can choose to be content. We don't have to be like Israel. We don't have to be complainers. We don't have to have that greener grass syndrome. Thank you so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.